you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to ask you, if you would, please stand with me as we come under the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Mark 3, verse 1. Again he, and this is Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. And they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Let's pray together, shall we? And let's come to our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who is here, who is Lord of this church, and in whose presence we celebrate, we sing, we bless his name, and we rejoice. Let's come to him together in prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, we thank you that you are indeed our Father because you sent your Son to come and enter into a world filled with hateful people who would rather celebrate the traditions and the cultures of men rather than the love of God and the love of their fellow men, those who would put religious traditions and rules above the care and the well-being of those whom you have created, and those who would put a microscope to the sins of others while they ignored the planks in their own eyes. Father, we thank you for sending a son who would bear our sins and shed his blood for our sins, to take the penalty, the rejection, and the curse that we deserved, the wrath that we deserved. And in His place, He has given you us to be your adopted children. He has made us your own. We belong to you because of the work and the sacrifice and the love 
and the blood he shed. And so we thank you and we rejoice that we can come to you as our father, a good father, a father who is not like the fathers of this world. And we say, because of what the Spirit does in our hearts, hallowed be thy name. Would your name be set apart in all our hearts, in this place, in this household, as holy. Set apart, O Lord, from the things of this world. Set apart from the sin, the fallenness, the foolishness of this world. Would your kingdom come and would your will be done in our hearts, in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our lives, in this church. Would your will be done here, even as it is in heaven. Father, we want to thank you for giving us our daily bread. We, of all believers, and in this church and this household, have been loved and taken care of, spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially, beyond anything that we could hope or imagine because of you. Yet we know, Father, that there are those in our midst who still have pains and hurts, and there are still struggles. There are challenges, Lord, with family members who may be sick or struggling financially. There may be those in our midst, and there are, who are struggling physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And so, Lord, we come to you that you would supply our daily bread And the greatest Lord of that daily bread is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the bread of heaven. And we thank you that we can partake of the one who makes us whole. Give us, Lord, this day our daily bread. Would you be the one who we depend on for all our needs? And we thank you that all we have, we have received and has been a gift from you. Father, we ask that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. Father, we are sorely tempted in this world. We are sinners and we are tempted by the world. We are tempted by the evil one and his deceitful lies. We are tempted by our very own sinful flesh that seeks to deceive us that we do not belong to you, but we belong and are ruled by this world, and yet we are not. And so we just pray, O Lord, we need your help and strength. We need you to stir our faith in you and in the promises of your word, that there is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to men, but you will provide a way through for us. And so we look to you to lead us as a good shepherd in your paths of righteousness, with your rod and your staff, which comfort us, that through you and by you and for you, we might find a way through this difficult world and this difficult season, knowing that our dwelling place is with you. Lord, forgive us our debts, which are many and huge. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you give. But Lord, forgive us most of all for not being forgiving. You have forgiven us, Lord, all our sins, past, present, and future. You have nailed them to the cross. You see us through the righteousness of your Son. You treat us as beloved children. Our performance does not determine your love for us. Your love, O Lord, determines our destiny and our fate. And yet, we must confess, Lord, as a people, 
It's very easy, and we have been self-righteous, judgmental, and at times unforgiving, looking down at the sins of others while we overlook and conceal our own. Father, forgive us for being this way, because this is not the way of your children. And we repent of this and turn to you, Lord Jesus, and ask us to teach us your way. Fill us with your Spirit. Strengthen us, Lord, that we in turn might forgive those who sin against us, no matter how grievous. And Lord Jesus, this is beyond our strength and capacity. But it is not beyond your strength and capacity as you demonstrated on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Lord... Help us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to walk not by our strength, but by the strength of the gospel, to love you and to love others in the way you have loved us. For yours indeed is the kingdom. Yours indeed is the power and glory forever and ever. Father, we set our hope on the grace that is to come, that one day we will see you, we will see your Son, And we will be like Him. And we will be reunited with all of you. And this is our purpose and this is our destiny that is so much greater than the trials and challenges this day. We thank you for that, Father. And we look forward to what you will do in our midst to prepare us for that time. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, my boys were timing me this morning. I, I wonder if I disappointed them in being shorter than I usually pray. But uh, it's my joy and pleasure this morning to welcome to the pulpit Dr. Amos. He needs no introduction. There are a few words I always like to say. Um, one of the great blessings in my life has been... Uh, Amos's friendship, and that's a gift from the Lord. And also, one of the great blessings in my life is the gospel ministry of New Life Church. It's a rare thing to have partners in the gospel, even in the realm of, quote-unquote, conservative evangelicals. There is um, much division that needs to be healed, and there's still so much need for Christ. So it's a rare thing where there is a unity and a kindred spirit, both Uh, from a pastor and also a ministry. And it is rare, but it is refreshing. And I think the Lord allows that for a reason, so that we appreciate those things and we appreciate Jesus even more. And it was certainly my desire and my priority to have Amos, in particular, fill the pulpit um, this year earlier rather than later. Uh, As you know, and as I say, this is not my pulpit. This is Christ's pulpit. It's not even Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose's pulpit. It's Christ's pulpit. And it's a good thing for a church to have different pastors to come in. In many ways, Amos is gifted in many ways that I am not. And the same is true for what I refer to as Pastor Ted and Pastor Peter, which is why it's a priority for me to have them at different times during the year to fill the pulpit. God has gifted those men with gifts that I do not have. And so it's a a blessing uh, for us as a church to welcome Pastor and Dr. Amos to the pulpit. And it's a joy for me to uh, sit under your teaching this morning. So welcome. Thank you. 
very much, Pastor Mark, for that gracious introduction as I struggle here with the microphone a bit. It's great to be back here with you, Lighthouse Bible Church. Good morning to all of you. I believe it's been about nine months since I've had this privilege, and so thank you so much for welcoming back here uh, to your church. It's great to see all of you today. What are you embarrassed about? When I was a child, I was embarrassed, to be honest, of being Asian. I was one of very few Asians in the very small town of Illinois where I grew up, and from kindergarten through junior high, I usually was the only Asian student in whatever classrooms I was in. During those years, for many of my classmates and schoolmates, I was the first and only Asian person with whom they had ever interacted up close. You can use your imagination and guess what that means. When you're the token Asian kid, surrounded by other kids who are often as immature as kids can be. I was made fun of all the time, and specifically for being Asian. Ten years ago, when a student at UCLA named Alexandra Wallace suddenly became famous for mocking Asian languages in a video that unfortunately for her went viral, I was actually surprised at the magnitude of backlash since what Wallace did and said were what I often heard and experienced on a daily basis growing up. Growing up in that context that I did, there were moments here and there when I wished that things were different. Specifically, at times, I wished that I were Caucasian, that my parents could speak fluent English without an accent, and that my family would eat at home the same foods that everybody else ate. That way, I wouldn't be asked constantly, what do you eat at home? All of those things, of course, weren't true of my reality, though. And because I was ashamed of that, I tried to downplay, minimize, and even hide those realities of my life. Well, what sort of things are you embarrassed about? Or were you embarrassed about? On a personal level, I have no doubt that many of you could potentially share about many different issues. On a corporate level, though, did you know that Christians as a group often are embarrassed about several things in the Bible? It's sad, but it's true. To give you a handful of examples, many Christians are ashamed of what the Bible says about the creation of the world, Noah and the flood, the miraculous plagues that afflicted Egypt, the story of Jonah being swallowed by a large fish, homosexuality, holiness, and even just the basic concept of sin. You know that Christians are embarrassed by these things when they try to downplay, minimize, or hide them, even though they're plainly described in the Word of God. The part of the Bible, though, that Christians seem to be the most embarrassed about might be what's known as the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are those that invoke a curse on other people. They imprecate or call upon God to inflict calamity, vengeance, or judgment on your enemies. So, some examples of imprecations in the Psalms include these. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices let them fall. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Let destruction come upon him unawares. Shatter their teeth in their mouth. The righteous will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see. 
Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May they be blotted out of the book of life. Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. Let them be humiliated and perish. May burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into the fire. And from our passage today, in the title of today's sermon, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. How are you supposed to apply these psalms to your life? Can you pray these psalms when you have a disagreement with someone here at church? When someone cuts you off in traffic, when your husband forgets something important yet again, when your wife says something irrational that infuriates you, or when your kids act like the sinners that my kids are. Should you pray these psalms when you get passed over at work for that promotion that you know you deserve? Or when someone unjustly destroys your reputation through vicious lies? Can you pray these psalms when the post office letter carrier claims he rang the doorbell when he clearly didn't? And just lazily stuck that sorry we missed you slip on your door even though you were home waiting for that important package all day that you really need that day. A few years ago, a pastor had a conflict with several other individuals. And at his church's last worship service before it closed for good, that pastor prayed the imprecatory psalms against those people. Was that legitimate in the eyes of God? Depending on how you count, there are around 21 imprecatory psalms in the Bible. These psalms are part of God's word, they're inspired, and so they must have some sort of valid application to your life. But, what is that valid application? Today our passage is Psalm 109, likely the most famous and controversial of all the imprecatory psalms. Besides seeing answers to the questions that we just posed, today you're also going to see four components of dealing rightly with injustice. Four components of dealing rightly with injustice. You want to understand and internalize these components so that you'll know how to respond and so that you'll also know how to serve and minister to those around you when they too are treated poorly by others. Turn with me to Psalm 109 if you would and please follow along in your Bible since our main text won't be displayed on the slides today. I'll read at this time the first six verses, which are verses, I'd like to say, zero through five. As a side note, perhaps you've never heard of verse zero. As was mentioned, perhaps in past sermons that you might have heard, in the Psalms, there sometimes are titles before the first verse that are actually part of the Holy Spirit-inspired text. So, for example, here in my Bible... The words for the choir director, a psalm of David, are actually part of the text breathed out by the Holy Spirit. We often call that verse zero because it's part of the Bible and it's before verse one. This is in contrast to any titles that are inserted typically above the psalm by the publishers of your particular Bible translation. Such titles are meant to help orient you to the topic of the psalm but aren't actually part of the actual Bible. So, for example, in my New American Standard Bible, above that line for the choir director, A Psalm of David, which is part of the Bible, there's this title supplied by the New American Standard Bible editors, which says here, Vengeance Invoked Upon Adversaries. Without any further delay, Psalm 109, verses 0 through 5. 
For the choir director, a psalm of David. O God of my praise, do not be silent. For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Here in verse 1, you, say, you see that David says to God, do not be silent. When you're going through a hard time, at times you might think that God seems silent. In reality, though, God is never silent. God is always speaking, such as in his word that you probably always have access to. When you're under the illusion, though, that God is silent, why do you have that impression? Often the reason is because of how other people are treating you or not treating you. When you and I experience suffering, not always, it's often because of other people and their behavior. That's the case in this psalm here. As you see in verses 2 through 5, David is being unjustly attacked by hateful people who are wicked, deceitful liars. He's been good and loving towards them, but they respond to him with hate, evil, and accusations. This isn't the only time when David is treated unjustly. Almost all of the imprecatory psalms are actually written by David as well, which means that David is quite accustomed to being treated poorly. Many of you can probably relate to David's experience of being mistreated by others. That mistreatment might occur at work, school, or in your own family, or even marriage at times. What you shouldn't experience or feel, though, is any element of surprise. Due to the effect of sin in this world, being mistreated is part of being human. And even more so, it's part of being a genuine follower of God. And this has been the case in every era, not just ours. Whether in the Old Testament, during which David lived, or in the New Testament era today. 2 Timothy 3 famously tells you that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in John 15, Jesus tells you, if they persecuted me, which they definitely did, they will also persecute you. However Christ-like you are, you will suffer like Christ. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas say, through many tribulations, that is sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. These verses tell you that if you're a Christian, you should expect to suffer. And this brings you to the first component of dealing rightly with injustice, and that is to expect injustice. Expect injustice. Several months ago, I was talking to a friend of mine. He had been suffering quite a bit at that time, and not surprisingly, it was related to how another person was treating him. That prompted me to reflect a bit on my own journey regarding how I react when I feel like I'm being mistreated by others. I have to admit that during my younger days especially, I was regularly so devastated by other people's criticism, attacks, or disapproval. One episode that comes to mind occurred when I was only 21 years old. I'd recently just learned in seminary about an aspect of a biblical philosophy of ministry. I proposed something related to that at the Taiwanese church where I was in, attending at the time over there in Chicago, and I was promptly told no by the person I was serving under. 
For my immature self at that time, that already would have been devastating enough. But in the weeks following, that person then went around and spread several lies about me. Some of my friends at that time observed that I became profoundly morose, depressed, and bitter for several weeks. Why did I become so depressed? Why did I react so strongly to being told no and being lied about? Because I expected justice. I expected that the right thing would be done rather than the wrong things. And so when, in my view, the wrong things were done and right things weren't, I was surprised, disappointed, and devastated. I could have spared myself and my friends plenty of grief had I simply expected injustice rather than justice. When you expect injustice, it doesn't devastate and provoke you as severely when it occurs, which it will. If I could comment briefly on some of our current events, this is one of the frequent flaws of the modern social justice movement. There is definitely some aspects of good in social justice movements, but one substantial and foundational flaw in them is that they expect justice rather than injustice, even though we are in a fallen world full of sin that will never be fully resolved until the end times when the new heaven and new earth are established by God. Working patiently against injustice and hoping for justice are always good things. But expecting justice from fallen people in a fallen world only sets you up for disappointment, bitterness, anger, and acting out, which you'll notice are frequent hallmarks of the modern social justice movement. Well... If you're supposed to expect injustice and yet hope for justice, and if you can't count on sinful people for justice, where are you supposed to turn? Look with me at the next 15 verses, verses 6 through 20. David says, Appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. In the following generation, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off their memory from the earth. Because he did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted the afflicted and needy man and the despondent in heart to put them to death. He also loved cursing, so it came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. But he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, and it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him as a garment with which he covers himself, and for a belt with which he constantly girds himself. Let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord." And of those who speak evil against my soul. 
This section is the meat of the imprecatory psalm, and it is where most of the imprecations occur. And so we'll spend the majority of our time right here. Back in verses 1 through 5, David uses the plural to refer to his plural number of accusers. Here in verses 6 through 20, he switches to the singular mainly just for simplicity, but that singular does stand for the plural group. In verses 6 through 13, you see that David asks God to take action against his accuser by doing things like letting him be found guilty by a human authority, shortening and ending his life, taking away all of his possessions, isolating his now bereaved family from any helpful relationships, and even obliterating his family from the earth. And then in verses 14 through 20, you see that David asks God to always remember the sin of his accuser's ancestors and to let that accuser be accursed. As you can probably guess, many people are entirely uncomfortable with this psalm because of the section we just read. Some say that this psalm is in conflict with Christian values. In Matthew 5, Jesus says to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Commentator J.N. Day acknowledges that this one psalm is the most controversial and criticized of all 150. When you think of the psalms, you probably think of pleasant, uplifting verses like, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord and shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. You don't think of verses that ask God to kill your enemy and his children? One commentator writes, There is no part of the Bible that gives more perplexity and pain to its reader than this one. Another commentator asks, how can it be right to wish or pray for the destruction and doom of others? Many non-Christians over the centuries have pointed to this specific psalm and verses in it and said, see, your Bible must not be true. Your Bible is full of hate and religion and selfishness. Your religion must be false because God clearly would never condone this. How do we respond to these charges? Before I tell you how we do respond, let me tell you five wrong responses that are commonly given regarding the imprecatory psalms. One response is that these imprecations are not actually said by David, but are actually said by David's enemies against David. Another response is that these are the words of David, yes, but they are merely David's uninspired, human, and sinful words that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, in this view, David was just having a bad day, and his thoughts that day somehow and unfortunately ended up being recorded here in the Bible. But you should ignore them. A third response is that this is the Old Testament, and everybody knows that in the Old Testament, people were a bunch of unsophisticated and uncultured barbarians. Yes, these are the words of David, but David, too, was a barbarian. Fortunately, we're in the New Testament now, and we're much more sophisticated than that. Fourth, a fourth response is that these are David's imprecations, not against real people, but against his spiritual enemies. So, for example, David is angry at the fact that he forgets to do his daily prayers, and he is uttering these imprecations against his laziness in prayer. And fifth, 
A fifth and last response is that these imprecations are David's prophetic proclamations about what will happen in the distant future to evil people in general. These imprecations aren't actually uttered by David against any real enemies in his life. This, unfortunately, was the view of even people like John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon. These five responses, I want you to know, all range from the wrong and unreasonable to the ridiculous. And one reason you know they're wrong is because they ignore the plain sense of the text itself. Another reason you know that some of them are wrong is because they deny the full inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures. The fact that the Bible is God-breathed and the voice of God himself. A better way to respond to the charges of the Bible being full of hate is to make some observations directly from the Bible rather than to ignore them. First, notice that David appeals to God for justice. By this we mean... David doesn't take justice into his own hands. In response to the mistreatment described back here in verses 1 through 5, David doesn't take a sword and hack his enemies to death himself. He easily could have done that. But instead, he appeals to God for justice. Notice that in verse 4, David says, In return for my love, they act as my accusers. If you or I... We're writing this psalm. The next line then might say, And so I responded in kind and spread many juicy lies about them. Fight fire with fire. But that's not how David responds. He says here in verse 4, But I am in prayer. Instead of taking justice into his own hands, David turns to God. This is a crucial distinction. And you'll notice how this is in entire contrast to how many people today respond against perceived injustice by stretching out their own hands to harm others, destroy property, loot merchandise, and otherwise cause hardship and harm to their fellow man. One approach is to take justice into your own sinful hands, and that would be sin, and entirely inconsistent with biblical values. The other approach is to appeal to God for justice and to leave it in his holy and perfect hands. That would be the biblical approach and the approach of David in this psalm. Here's a second important observation. David appeals to God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Recall that way back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. The context there shows that this promise applies not just to Abraham, but to all of Abraham's chosen descendants, that is, the people of Israel. In Psalm 109 here, David's enemies are harming and cursing him, and so David calls on God to simply be faithful to his long-standing promise to curse those who curse his people. It is entirely legitimate to ask God to live up to his own promises and character. Here's a third important observation. David appeals to God's glory. This is something that critics of the Bible consistently overlook. Contrary to what you might initially assume, David's motivation in the imprecatory Psalms is selfless rather than selfish. You know this because he specifically identifies God's glory as his main concern, not any sense of angry personal vengeance. In verse 21, he says to God, Deal kindly with me. Why? 
for your name's sake. And in verse 27, David says to God, let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Over in Psalm 58, after submitting his imprecations there to God, David says, and men will say, surely there is a God who judges the earth. In Psalm 59, David says, destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. Why? That men may know that God rules in Jacob to the very ends of the earth. So why do the imprecatory Psalms exist? Why does David imprecate his enemies? Because of an appeal to God's justice, faithfulness, and glory. Not because of an immature or selfish expression of rage and vengeance. This is all centered on God's character and God himself. And this brings you to a second component of dealing rightly with injustice. And that is count on God for justice. Count on God for justice. My eldest daughter, Genevieve, or Jenna for short, just started kindergarten this past fall. This past summer, as the beginning of the academic year approached, and it seemed like classes were going to be in person, my wife Emily asked me one day out of the blue, when Jenna goes to school, what if she gets bullied? At that time, like the dense and insensitive husband that I definitely am, I unfortunately flippantly said something like, oh, don't worry, that won't happen. And then I just refocused on whatever it was that I was doing at that time. A week or two later, though, I started wondering to myself, silently, yeah, what if Jenna gets bullied at school? Her English isn't that good yet, and the other kids, being kids, might not know how to react rightly to that. After doing a little research online, I concluded that bullying is common enough in the school setting that every parent probably should be mentally prepared for that possibility and have some sort of approach regarding what to do when and if it occurs. That would seem to be better than to be blindsided and to react recklessly and suddenly in the heat of the moment. For a while, Jenna's classes turned out to be only online. But there came that day not too long ago when she went to campus in person for school. Leading up to that day, Emily and I told Jenna something to the effect of, if anyone at school is mean to you, hits you, pushes you, or says really mean things to you or about you, make sure you let mommy and daddy know. We want to know about that. You can come to us. We would want to know because we care about our kids and we would want to be able to help. That's part of who we are and part of our character as her parents. Imagine with me, though, a different kind of situation. Imagine a parent who tells his kid, Daughter, if you're getting bullied at school, if some kid is beating you up, stealing your lunch money, and tearing up your homework before you can turn it in, keep that to yourself. I don't want to hear about that. You take care of that stuff yourself. That stuff is not important to me, so don't bother me with that garbage. Or perhaps even worse... Let's say the kid already is being bullied and comes to her father and asks for help. The father then responds, I told you not to bother me with that garbage. Go away. What would you think about such parents? Similarly, when God's people are mistreated and suffering, 
God wants to hear about it. Not because he doesn't already know, but because he wants you to have that kind of relationship with him and to know that that is part of his character. He is a good God, just, faithful, and glorious. When you're mistreated, quickly turn to him in prayer and count on him for justice rather than recklessly take things into your own hands. Let me now quickly clarify a few things before we move on. First, counting on God for justice does not preclude availing yourself of the tools he himself has provided to you. For example, in verses 6 and 7, David asks God to appoint an authority to bring his accuser to justice. In our day and context, we typically would call that the government, law enforcement, and the courts. All of which are graciously provided by God, and hence are legitimate ways for you to avail yourself of the justice of God. When those measures, though, fail you and refuse to provide justice, that's when turning to God himself becomes so necessary and even more meaningful. Second, what's up with David asking God to afflict not just the evil accuser himself, but also his children and wife? You might find it acceptable that David imprecates against his evil accuser, but you might be uncomfortable with what David says in verses 9 and 10 to God, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg. Let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Perhaps that sentence sounds a bit heavy-handed to you. Maybe you think David was doing well until those verses when he just went a bit too far overboard. In response to that concern, you do need to be aware of at least a couple realities. First, verse 9 is simply a poetic way of asking God to take the life of the evil man in response to his sins. In verse 16, you read that this man is murderous, and so it's only fitting for him to be put to death himself. There are some sins that are so severe, so egregious, And there are some sinners who are so determined to sin in such outrageous ways that death is the only way to restrain them and to fittingly punish them. If a man dies due to such sins and crimes, his children will unfortunately be fatherless and his wife a widow. A second reality is that any time someone sins, that sin affects the people around him, perhaps most severely his own family, his wife and children. Think of the alcoholic father, for example, who squanders his time, money, and mind drinking. His wife and children are affected because they're deprived of a sober husband, father, leader, and godly example, and they're affected in these ways even though they're not the ones drinking. Think of the mother addicted to crack cocaine. Her children are affected, both in the womb and probably even afterwards, potentially severely so for life whether through things like mental retardation, poverty, or a lack of love and care. Think of the man with an anger problem. His parents, family, co-workers, or perhaps even neighbors pay a price, even though it's not their anger that's the problem. Even the man who indulges privately in sin, such as in pornography, and thinks he isn't hurting anyone is sadly mistaken. Everyone he knows pays a price for his sin because every time they interact with him, they're robbed of the opportunity to be impacted and blessed and influenced by the better man he would be if it weren't for that sin and its consequences in his heart, mind, and life. 
When you sin, your sin affects those around you. And that has always been a reality of life. And similarly, the sin of the evil man here in Psalm 109 affects his wife and children, perhaps through even his death. This, by the way, should be an incredible incentive to you to flee from temptation and to avoid sin. Think of all the people in your life your sin will negatively affect. Even beyond all the people you imagine, there probably are a myriad of others you're not thinking about. Third, when exactly is it legitimate for you as a Christian to imprecate? When can you pray prayers like the one you're seeing here? Looking at the text, there are several clues regarding the kind of situation where imprecatory prayers would be legitimate. First, you're suffering injustice. You're suffering injustice. You don't get to imprecate against others simply because you don't like them or are reaping the consequences of your sin. So, for example, if you steal merchandise from Costco and get arrested, lifting up imprecatory psalms against the police would not be legitimate. In that situation, you are suffering justly, not unjustly. Second, your behavior has been righteous. Your behavior has been righteous. In verses 3 through 5, David says that his accusers are attacking him without cause and that he has been loving and good towards them. If you're treated unjustly, but then you respond sinfully by then unjustly attacking your attackers in return, you likely have no platform any longer to lift up any imprecatory prayers to God. Third, you've availed yourself of available and God-given resources already. We touched upon this a bit earlier. When you're mistreated, there are several biblical ways for you to respond depending upon the situation and its specifics. And you want to make sure that you've availed yourself of those resources before engaging in imprecation. So, for example, if you hear that someone is spreading lies about you, the biblical first step would be to go to that person and seek to resolve this with him directly, not immediately pray for his death and the starvation of his children. Or, if someone tells you, tonight I'm going to come to your house and burn your house down. Call the police, which is an entity ordained by God for the dispensing of his justice. If the police, though, tell you, we don't care. That person paid us a handsome sum to let your house burn. Go away. You're probably in a pretty good situation to imprecate. Lastly, Understand that the justice of God will be provided in his timing, not yours. The second component of dealing rightly with injustice is to count on God for justice. Don't misconstrue that to mean that the justice of God will occur according to your timing and preferences. It may not, but you can always trust that God's justice will be served sooner or later. There is no such thing as a sin that escapes God's notice. And there is no sin that God will not bring eventually to justice. Often this takes place within our own lifetime. Sometimes it takes place in the judgment to come. Regardless, it will occur and all injustice will be paid for. Moving on, look at the next nine verses with me here. Verses 21 through 29. 21 through 29. 
But you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake, because your loving kindness is good. Deliver me. For I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like the locust. My knees are weak from fasting, and my flesh has grown lean without fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their head. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your loving kindness, and let them know that this is your hand. You, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, they shall be ashamed, but your servant shall be glad. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor, and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. Here, David admits that he is weak, afflicted, needy, and at the end of his rope. He is desperate. When David says in verse 23 that he's passing like a shadow when it lengthens, he's referring to how shadows in the late evening lengthen quickly right before disappearing entirely. When he says that he's shaken off like the locust, he's referring to how farmers of that time would shake their trees to make the locusts fall off and then quickly stomp on all of them since such locusts were viewed as pests and destroyed crops. David's saying that he's on the verge of death, and hence he is turning to God in desperation. He asks God to deal kindly with him, to deliver him and save him. This brings you to the third component of dealing rightly with injustice, and that's turn to God for help. Turn to God for help. One of the biggest puzzles of the Christian life is how slow you and I are to turn to God for help in our time of need. It is true that we turn to God more during our times of desperation, but it's also true that we tend to be quite slow at this, much slower than this, than we need to be. When you're dealing with injustice, quickly turn to God for help. This will do your soul tremendous good and probably help prevent you from doing many things that are dysfunctional and sinful. Let's look now at the last two verses of our psalm, verses 30 and 31. David says, With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord, and in the midst of many I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. This psalm ends the way it began, and that is by praising and thanking God. The first verse in the psalm addresses, O God of my praise, and the psalm ends here by declaring, With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord, and in the midst of many I will praise him. Even when you suffer injustice, life seems horrible, and there seems to be no hope, you can always praise and thank God. There is always hope because of who God is and his character. He knows your situation. Verse 31 here leaves you with these words. He stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. And so you can and must praise and thank God even in the midst of justice. And that's one of the reasons I so appreciate that song that we sang right before this song, right before this sermon. That we can always bless God's name even when the darkness closes in. This brings you to the fourth component of dealing rightly with injustice, and that's praise and thank God. 
praise and thank God. Earlier, I told you that during my childhood, I was embarrassed of being Asian. That lasted all the way until the summer after eighth grade. For various reasons, beginning that summer, I stopped being embarrassed about being the Asian kid. It became something that I accepted and even became proud of. No longer did I need to or want to downplay, minimize, or hide my Asianness. Similarly, the imprecatory psalms are a part of God's word, just like any other genre of scripture. Just like the passages that teach the gospel, show you how to live, and reveal the character of God, the imprecatory psalms are breathed out by the exact same Holy Spirit and are provided to edify you and to train you. Never downplay, minimize, or hide the imprecatory psalms. Instead, we should study pray and preach them just like any other portion of the scriptures. Today, you've seen four components of dealing rightly with injustice. Expect injustice, count on God for justice, turn to God for help, and praise and thank God. Injustice is definitely a part of this world and always will be until you and I arrive in heaven. Imagine what you'll be like if you consistently deal correctly with injustice that will always surround you. Imagine what Lighthouse Bible Church would be like as a church if all of you were to respond to the sins and crimes of this world rightly rather than wrongly. The world around you right now especially speaks a lot of justice and injustice, but they get these topics very wrong. Let's show the world the right path And how it's done. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the sufficiency of your word and also its authority. Your word is so complete, it truly does speak to all of the nuances of our life. When we submit ourselves to the authority of your word, we find ourselves edified. We find ourselves in the midst of your will. We are approving of what is good. When we neglect your word, we so easily take on the perspectives of this world. We are immersed in worldliness. We do ask that you would train us now to receive your word humbly, to understand it correctly, to love it including portions like the ones we just read. For any here, Father, who are having a difficult time submitting to you in any area of life, we do pray for a heart of humility, for a heart of submission towards you, a heart of love towards you. We do ask this, Father, in your Son's name, for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.